0: Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. Today's episode is a recording of a conversation between the author Max Porter and myself, taken from an online event to celebrate the release of Porter's most recent novel, Shy. Here's the recording. I hope you enjoy the conversation.
1: Good evening, everybody. It's my great pleasure to welcome you to this Readings Online event with Max Porter. As many of you already know, Max Porter is a writer, an editor and uh, a biographical of detail close to my heart, a commended bookseller in a prior life. As with all Reading's events, we're here to celebrate literature, stories, poetry, but in particular tonight we're here to discuss Porter's most recent novel, Shy, which was published this month in Australia by Faber. Shy is the fourth book by Porter, follows Brief is a Thing which Feathers, which, among other accolades, won the International Dylan Thomas Prize, the Man Booker Long Listed Lenny, and the Curious and Enchanting, The Death of Francis Bacon. And while Porter's output is concise and approachable, I feel like each book opens up its own little world to really savour and ponder, and we're very lucky to have Max here talk about his work and this new book, Shy. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge something before we get into tonight's discussion, Among many things about Max Porter's work, there is one thing that I find particularly powerful, um, and that is the evocations of place and time, and that's something I was acutely aware of when reading this book, as with, for instance, with Lanny. And I'm a long way away from England um, where this book is set, almost as far away as one could be in our world, at least geographically. But the poetic way in which senses and feelings are evoked as things within place and time resonated with me really deeply and offered me a space to contemplate where I am with that curious, rare feeling that lingers only when you finish reading something special that sticks with you. Where I am is in the northern expanse of the city of Melbourne, and it's the eastern Kulin country. And the people who've been here an eon before my family and the, the traditional peoples of this land are the... Wurundjeri, Wurundjeri people, and I want to acknowledge those people and all First Nations people in this country, the Elders. I want to recognise their connection to land and country and to acknowledge that I'm very aware of where I am in the reality of truth-telling and reconciliation. For those of you who have not yet read this book, and also for those of you who have, Shy follows our protagonist, the titular Shy. Over just several hours in the deepness of a single night. But over these hours, we as readers are invited to ponder Shai's entire world, his existence, his mind, and it's rough. And in parts, it made my heart ache. As you write, Max, the night is huge and it hurts. Shai is, as others say, and he parrots, a very disturbed young man. His mother offers instead that he's lost. But this text is as addled with the disturbed as it is rich in the gorgeous, like Porter's prior books, Shai's thoughts, feelings, his memories, his urges, his guilt, his rage, his love, his fascination, are uh, vivid and loud, like the music he is obsessed with, 90s drum and bass, that Max, you evoke with the specificity that I think I need to ask about further into our conversation. And like in Lanny, what plot there is in Shy is a vehicle for what Porter's writing, I feel, explores in such a unique way, what it plays with, what it turns on its head, delights in, in a really wonderful way, and that's language. Like grief, what is evoked, who is evoked, is a rich character, rendered with compassion and generosity, and it's laden with philosophical and social pondering. There is a lot in Shy, this special little book that is not brief, but is exact and there's a lot I seek to learn about. So I'd better get right to it. Um, So, Max, it's a real pleasure to speak with you today, and thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks to everyone for joining. Thanks for the acknowledgement. Um, I really appreciate it, and and, um, that's a beautiful introduction. Thank you. Well, thank you. Nico, I'm going to change my view so that I can just see us Everyone to know that I, you are in my mind, but I just can't handle all these little boxes. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to hide you, but you're, I, I feel you in my heart. and grateful for your presence.
1: Okay, cool. I, I appreciate the compassion in the coldness of the Zoom call. Um, <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Max, I'd imagine that many of us who are joining this session and many of those listening after the fact, as followers of your work, have picked up shy pretty quickly upon release and eagerly devoured it. It's one of those books that one may feel compelled to finish in one sitting. I guess I'd like to ask you to ground our conversation at a starting point. Could you perhaps tell us about a little bit about this book, where it came from and when it came from, if I might ask?
2: Yeah, well, people have rightly and understandably suggested that it might be the third part in the trilogy of boyhood, an examination of boyhood and pain um, perhaps also parental agony that, that began in grief is a thing with feathers and then carried on in Lanny. And then as you say, my, my, my unpublishable pretentious um, wank fest, Francis Bacon is a little punctuation <laughs> in that. But, but I, uh, I hadn't thought of it as a trilogy, but I am, um, I find the triptych immensely alluring as a structural device. And so I, I do like that, especially because I do, I do feel like I've kind of reached the end of a certain formal tactics in my work um that i'll move on from now so so if we take it as the third part of a trilogy then yeah it's 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 about an older child he is about 16 or 17 he's never really fully described in any biographical sense but he is living in a place called the last chance which is a school with progressive educational intent where boys were sent before borstal or Young Offenders Institute. It, it, it's, it's a last stab at education, so it, it's, it's nicknamed Last Chance. The book opens with him leaving that place at 3 a.m. with a backpack full of rocks. It, it's a nocturne, really. The whole book takes place over about three hours. The first part of the book, Shy is bombarded or is moving through a sort of storm of his own and other people's sense of himself he's sort of bombarded by a sort of polyphonic weather system of other people's conception of him his therapist his teachers his mum, his stepdad his peers and also these kind of horrific night terror like single sentence um flashbacks to his recent violent misdemeanors drugs and violence and he is tugged along both by his despair and his desire to visit this pond with this backpack of rocks but also by his great love which is for fungal and drum and bass and then the second half of the book is when he arrives at the pond and has a sort of mystical encounter that we won't perhaps talk about too much. But we can allude to maybe, Nico, about what what that is in, in the kind of texture of this book, but also across all my books. And as you say, because it particularly relates to the relationship between human and the non-human and consciousness and landscape, the living and the dead and all the kind of things that I have been interested in across
1: all these books. As per your books, that was very concise. Great overview. I guess it's it's funny that you mentioned, you know, echoing the formal or textural and textual strands that are present in your other books because like with Lanny, you do so much in this book that is literally playing with words on the page. And it's never a novelty, but it's always really compelling within your work. And I feel like it really mirrors what you're doing really well. With Lanny, you would do readings of the text that really made the most of how you're working with the text on the page so would you be willing to read something from the text that either does or doesn't play with these kinds of elements
2: it's tricky to do the kind of bombardment of the voices now you've mentioned that nick maybe i'll try <laughs> um, tell you what i'll do i'll just read some straight pieces and then we could perhaps discuss what they what they mean in the kind of fabric of the whole when I do live readings with this book I've been tending to do it with musicians and other actors and try and make each different performance unique and sort of doing the voices as it were like what I do is I get a teenage boy and I set him up on stage and I put a backpack on and I put his hood up and I just stalk around him talking for quite a long time and it's quite a dramatic thing it's an odd thing to try and do on zoom (laughs) you know it, it, it quite quickly becomes just a person in their little green box shouting anyway this will give you a sense of the book I think Amanda taught them about the Norns, the mystical Nordic sisters sitting, knitting futures, and that night Shy was woken by the weight of them, sat at the foot of his bed. Three ancient biddies, oddly familiar hybrids of mum, nana, Amanda, Thatcher, Mrs. Hooper, his play-school teacher, Pat Butcher, Jenny, Madge Bishop, women he's known or seen or imagined collaged together, risen from the smudgy mess of his subconscious staring at him, smiling. One of them's knitting. Fate being looped and strung as he falls back asleep, knuckles turning, crackling in his mind. The night is a shattered flicker-drag of these sense-jumbled memories, like he's dropped, but he is stone-cold not. He's just traipsing along, conducting memories. Shy here has extremely disturbing dreams, but we're working on some strategies, some coping mechanisms. Some nighttime tricks, isn't that right, Shy? The field is staying dead still, but tonight it's tight and close around him like he's wrapped up in it. A block of night that moves with him, breathes as he breathes. Everything is pressing edge, encroaching, dense. He doesn't want to think about what might be out there. Posh cow comes from the countryside and tells stories about these woods, these old hunty blokes who live in the forest and cut people up and burn them on big bonfires with all the brackens and bracken and smoky shit so nobody knows. Grind the bones into pig lunch, shiny leather high heels and kids toys in the wood like props from ITV murder dramas. Scared people running through bracken and brambles trying to get to the safety of the big house. But the big house isn't safe. It's fully stocked with violent, frustrated young male offenders all lying awake. Night sweats in the dark last chance, marinating their desire to hurt people night after night in their soupy, rural, overlapping dreams. Bad young men. Blast past borstal bastards, lab rats, lying there while crusty ghosts from the old house crouch over them, dribbling fear and violent fantasy into their ears. drip spittle, trickle in the middle of the mean old witchy littered English woods a long way from home. A long way from any lights or cab ranks or trust or mums. Hello, says the voice from his dreams. Wakey, wakey, shy. Up and at em.
1: Thank you. It's quite something to read the text and then to experience it again with you doing the reading. It really takes on a a quality that
2: I mean. I want it to. I want it, it has to barrel along, you know, because the book it is felt by Shai at about 170 BPM. He has no, as I say, his 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 uh, existential crisis, as well as his worries in the dance. You know, his desire to keep on moving are tethered to his love of this music. And his suicidal impulses are, are are also also contained within them, sort of wrapped up in them, this this ecstasy that he feels. And this kind of, he's running away from these voices and his shame and his guilt and this sense of him endlessly being a riddle. What is wrong with you, shy? You know, so many people in the book say, just talk to me. And he can't. And so he's sort of barreling away from that. And I think that requires... It, both in the in the sentence of the, sentences of the book, in the syntax of the individual granular level of the language, but also in its presentation as a reading, requires a kind of hurling. You know, there aren't many moments of reflection in this book. There's sort of one where he lists a series of apologies, and that's the kind of only time we really hear from him, and even then he's playing a kind of game of not really apologising. Thanks for letting
1: me read. I appreciate it. Well, of course. Thank you. What sticks in the mind the most to me from that passage is the notion of the knuckles cracking in the brain and really strange, powerful, disturbing image of what I feel when I'm so vividly inside of Shai's brain or inside his his soul, I guess, which is really vividly deployed. And it's something that's quite confronting to reckon with a young person who feels that way. It's tragic, but it's only by going in that place inside his brain that we're able to really get to the truth and to fundamentally empathise with him, I feel. As you say, you know, it, it hurls and it rushes.
2: Well, I mean, I've talked to a lot of people, and I haven't obviously known a lot of people, as we all have. We've known a lot of Shai's, but also shy's descriptions of his own pain like, the, like that, or like he, at one point he talks about barbed wire scrunched up inside him and then this sudden slippage into like into loose, easy feeling where he can hear everybody's thoughts and... You know, these are based on conversations with people or of all, you know, neurodivergent people or old people or, you know, I I work with people with dementia and I work with children. and I work with, you know, people, you know, the the point what I wanted to create for him was a sense of a true mind rather than a mind in disarray created by me as as a 40 year old novelist essaying around the idea of someone with mental health problems or even even having decided for myself on a diagnosis for him which I would then put on him as, an, as a literary character. I thought it would be much more interesting to kind of create him as a centrifugal absence in the book out of which our own identification with such feelings would fill that in. Do you see what I mean? Like, so it's much more, his pain is a collaborative undertaking. So if, if a line like that lands for you, that then that's really, really good. Cause that's what it's there to do. It's, right. it's there to invite Beyond the kind of artificial empathy, which I don't quite, the kind of fallacy of literary empathy, which can be an easy way out, I think. I think it has to convert to something more like a bodily, physical sharing of his of his feelings. And I think that's why the language has to behave as it does. If the sentence itself is wounded or uncanny, then your identification with him is, is comparably inflicted and febrile and felt. Um, and that's what I've been trying to do across all these books is have them felt. And sometimes that goes you know too far for some readers, for other readers and go far enough. By creating someone like Shy, it sort of at least asks you to think about how far you do want to go in thinking about someone else, you know, and how, how is your vocabulary emotional or medical or sociological, how is your
1: vocabulary fit for purpose? I will say though that someone in the chat, Emily McLeod, has quite rightly pointed out that your line that his pain is a collaborative experience is something that needs to be understood about Shy, but also perhaps about our society in that. You don't want to have this kind of false empathy that's just putting something on someone. I feel like one of Shai's qualities that kind of jumped to me was that he has this ability to be able to see through adults in this way that I think is very uncanny and really, I think they find disconcerting. And they put up walls to shut out him throwing back at them what they put on him. And so this moment where someone is, you know, asking Shy like, why can't you be like this? Why can't you be like that? He can see that they're just trying to get something from him for themselves. It's something that perhaps we forget how children can surprise us in ways that we're not able to anticipate, or when they yeah. do reveal a way of being that is not unique to childhood, but perhaps is beaten out of us by the world. And I
2: think it might startle us into a recognition of how, how impoverished the adult emotional or political landscape is in dealing with what is true what is fundamentally true and in our tendency to sort of belittle or patronize teenagers oh you oh you you know your activism oh well you wait that'll get bashed out of you you know you know your desire to save the planet well that's very romantic you wait you know you'll have a diesel car and you'll you know You'll drift to the right, just as I have, son. You know that kind of terrible Mebus m- 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 strip of kind of complicity in, in in the kind of shedding of of emotional clarity and and sort of taking on of the kind of robotic norms of of whatever it is, late late capitalism or whatever, whatever these terribly destructive, you know whatever you know white supremacy, misogyny, you know, the ways like actually with love. You know, when a teenager tries to express the, the 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 churning rage and passion and 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 tumult of their feelings, and we're just like, no, you'll get over it. It's just a crush, and we're a quite wrong about that. It's as real as it ever is. It's it's it, it's everything we should be aspiring to in our relationships with each other. But b, there's some great fear and envy in that re- in that reaction, isn't it? Because we realise what we have lost. Um, so yeah, you're right that shy sees through that, and I hope that's why this is about now. Because I wanted, you know, that sort of sense of, particularly writing in conservative Britain, you know, which you all all know is, is is gone beyond now. It, 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 you know, we're a global outlier. We, we, we the 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 setting aside of the British moral compass is is so complete now. It's it's horrifying landscape here of of, of injustice and inequality and violence towards the vulnerable be it from elsewhere and within our own society. it's, it's really it's really monstrous and I know <laughs> you've got your own problems over there and I know some of these are shared problems and but I wanted Shai's Yelp of just uh, or, or, and actually all his peers as well. like what they're achieving in there, they're deemed to be society's waste product, right? The, the the kind of hugger hoodie emblem of everything that's gone wrong. These like these 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 sort of machines for for squalid violence and and vocabulary free rage and and they are in fact society's most sophisticated people in this version. They are achieving things between them invisibly uh, and in the kind of linguistic patterning and in the and in their relationship of their own bodies to one another in the ecosystem of this school. They are in fact like on 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 questions of gender and and race and class they're actually proto um advanced they're 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 incredibly sophisticated young people who who using real who using their bodies really in in the space are achieving things that we we continually fail to achieve as adults so as you say i wanted him to sort of hear those well-intentioned pleas and for him to just see right through them as a symptom of their own anxiety and terror and desire for him to comply or behave or fit into whatever box they've They've envisaged for him.
1: It's nice to hear you speak to those things because as someone who is not too much older than Shy in this book but can remember being his age and how it feels different to how it feels now, it is funny to experience the mind of someone else alive through the page and to have that thrown back at you and think, what happened to me? Where did I go? One thing I wanted to talk about is that Quite naturally, your answer to that question moved into the political realities of the modern United Kingdom of Britain. And I definitely I noticed with Lanny, so much in that book is about, or feels like it's about Brexit, Englanders, the way that we-
2: 9 9.25 in the morning, Nick. I don't say the B
1: word. I'm sorry. <laughs> I can't help myself. I was trying to be, you know, really ginger about yeah. it. Yeah, no,
2: go for it. You said it in a lovely,
1: soft way. Go for it. Thank you. What's funny about that book is, though, it's not a polemic. It's not a polemic about Brexit or about England. And I think this book arrives at a funny point, particularly for boys and boys becoming men, in a way that never feels polemic in the way that you've touched on it. But I'd be curious to know whether that's somewhat coincidental or whether it's something that plays upon your mind.
2: You know, none of us are going to be okay. of us are going to be okay and what's funny about Shai, you know with the 60 million year old rock he's he's on page one i'm arming him with that the question of deep time right as a human being like we've only just arrived we've made a terrible mess of this planet but is that does that put does that drench us in in deep shame or is it in fact a terribly cathartic and freeing piece of information to arm ourselves with you know like when we were all locked in during the pandemic actually the kind of total irrelevance of human life the total smallness of human life the shortness of the operation might have in fact be a wonderful blessing as as a kind of philosophical tool to anchor yourself in relation to the machinations of, of the human world like actually none of this matters you know this flint in my hand is 60 million years old what does any of this mean etc and i want him to be i want him to be accidentally as i say quite philosophically sophisticated in that regard the boys the problem of the boys you know as you say that the data is 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 unarguable now like that we have an epidemic of male suicide boys are underachieving in school boys are underachieving at university boys are underachieving in the job market men are you know here here, are the, here, here is the history of of misogyny and inequality on this planet and it all falls off, you know at the feet of men you know the narrative is is punishing and so for someone like shy you know so say a, a british teenager now right not only is it all, it's already quite difficult to get out of bed when you're a teenager right but when you've got the most intelligent people in your life and even perhaps the kindest people in your life explaining to you using the best vocabulary they have, it, albeit in the kind of n- narrow vocabulary of the present always, which is a, a tyranny I kind of try to push against in all my books. There's no B word in Lanny. You know, there's no there's no diagnostic language in in Shine. But nevertheless, you've got these people, these wise, brilliant people explaining to him uh, Colonialism, the relationship between colonialism and the end of the world, the relation—you know—the the the, the uh, how he is a clueless beneficiary of white supremacy, how he is prone to violence, how how he is a how he is a proto abuser, how he is a nuclear button presser in waiting, how he is all domestic violence stacked up in him, you know, ready ready to hurt, and I I want to I don't want to put I want to don't want to take him off the hook. I want to take us off the hook. And I don't want to put boyhood into a separate category of separate it from any of the other problems that we have in this world, or 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 to lessen the, the extent to which it's difficult for girls, or whatever. But I think that this question of of the child screaming through the through the adult skin, um, what are you get? What are you giving me? This question of the vertical axis and the inheritance. You know the famous Beastie Boys cover where he hold, he's holding up the Shawshank EP and he's saying, "Ma, what are they giving me?" Like mapped onto onto the sort of species wide particularly Western malaise of of existence now. Like the IPCC report talked about humanity being caught in a doom loop. And I think that's it. Shai is caught in a doom loop. And that doesn't make him immune to or ignorant of, or even in denial of the apparatus that will be handed to him in terms of hope. I hope there is a sort of baseline of hope pumping through this book and and non-judgmental. Like if he takes his own life, I don't judge him for that. And I don't think the reader does either. But similarly, that kind of the kind of generational thing whereby oh, no, no, this book isn't like bashing boomers. In fact, the boomers in this book are really incredible people. They're the heroes of the piece. But that thing in popular language of, of the Anthropocene of, of the young people will no doubt come up with fantastic ideas. You're young, you know. We fucked it, but you guys will come up with really clever solutions. I bet. You know, we'll say to our kids, you know, you could be the one that invents, you know, tidal energy off the coast of Norway and solves all our problems. And like, you know. It's such a cruel thing to do when we've when we've already removed, particularly in the u k. here, we've removed so many intellectual and physical movements, freedom of movements. I wanted to put that on him not as only in in in, a, in an apocalyptic context, but as a deeply felt emotional, daily, ordinary. you know, like domesticity is always hugely important to me. And I think that in my first book, you know, it was it was just as important to me that someone had to make the lunches or collect the football stickers or buy knit shampoo as it was that the the greatest tragedy in their life had ever occurred. And so in this book, like I want him to be thinking very carefully about who he's going to leave his sad, single, well-used pornographic magazine to. Or I wish he'd, you know, I wish he'd saved that last Marlborough light that he's stolen off his friend to be woven and connected to the broader question of what is what is human life <laughs> on this planet and what would I tell an alien invader if they were to kidnap me this morning and so on and so forth. Because I do think those things are connected in ways that the adult apparatus of a- activism or complicity or powerlessness, et cetera, or hope, hope as a kind of um, baggage, um, sometimes denies. It, it denies us um, our lived experience. Um, and I wanted to kind of reinstate
1: some of that for Shai. Hmm. I know it's something that we... We feel with Shai and the the joint that he has that represents so much salvation and so much joy and the music, you know, the music that he lives and feels so much and the power that that has in him is really, really powerful and powerful. And I guess
2: it's the end of the world for someone right now, right? Flick your fingers, it's the the, the world is ended for somebody. And weirdly, Shy's capable of understanding that in ways that we we aren't perhaps so capable, because it's a capability directly connected to the, his lack of denial, his, his awareness of the carnage that bubbles underneath the surface. You know, so perhaps it's sort of anti-pharmaceutical in that regard. It's a sort of a plea not to medicate the unhappy people in our society, because they might in fact be telling us the truth. Mm. Not to put people like Shy on mute but to let their let their feelings flood into and, and colour the, the language we use around our own pain. Lest, lest, we just, lest we just bury it and deny it. I mean, that, that's the thing, like, Lanny is a book about otherness or how a little flare of hostility becomes bigotry on a national scale or whatever. And shy really about about rage and truths and honesty and how if we if we if we just shush all that up and call it and call it difficult or call it mad then we then we we have we are literally severing ourselves from from the light from the nutrient base of of our um, emotional well being of, of truth as you know one of the things that's happened in the UK is that lying has become so normalized you know without without being an idiot and saying everything's Orwellian it's so Orwellian because there is now no there is no agreed common moral benchmark for the use of language even so you're allowed to just stand up as the most powerful person in this country and lie and just lie and lie and lie so what does that mean for someone like shy who's being asked every single day just tell me how you feel. So i don't feel anything i don't have there is no there is that the language itself is so debased the the, the, the pollution is so is so like I mean, I mean we literally here we've got shit in our rivers and shit in our sea. that the, the 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 water the water bed is so polluted at a, at a linguistic and a, a moral level that someone like shy when we say to someone like shy tell the truth he's like how dare you i have never heard the truth from any of you not about my body not about the water i drink not about the products i buy not about the food that i imbibe, not about the the you know religious or moral or political ideas that i'm supposed to have inherited from you people the whole thing's a shame um, mm-hmm. and he's right because I had to occupy the parent and the stepdad and the teacher and the therapist. So at the same time as I'm saying to him, you should take more exercise or that's just because you're paranoid because you smoke so much skunk. Or perhaps if you listen to less drum and bass, you'd be less jumped up. All those things are right. They're all they're all legitimate opinions. But no one in this book is more right than shy when he just closes his ears and screams in his own head.
1: Yeah. You know, that notion of telling the young kid, like, you know, maybe if you listen, listen to so much drum and bass, it echoes like you know a moral panic that's sweeping you know the UK and particular like East Coast United States and to some extent in, here in Australia in the big cities. like in oh, no, city. but
2: they're trying to ban they're trying to ban drill music yeah, in the UK. Music. Like a like Reagan has just stumbled out of his dirty grave and you know they tried to ban the other day. This is these, these people you know taking twenty nine million pound bonuses for the PPE packaging and. All of, you know, corruption like you just never see naked in the middle. They're trying to ban laughing gas canisters. Those nitrous oxide canisters that kids as kind of one of these anti-social behavior things like it's just an astonishing thing to do when you've absolutely decimated the welfare state. There's no you've taken 250 million quid out of social care. You defunded every youth club in the country. You've closed all the libraries like the yawning gap between the rich and the poor is worse than it was in Victorian times. And your solution to that is ban the laughing gas canisters that like a handful of kids take in a park on a Friday night. Yeah. Utterly insane. Anyway, sorry, Nico, I interrupted.
1: On. <laughs> oh, you're all good. Yeah, the um, the canisters, or as we call them over here, nangs. It's funny to see the cognitive dissonance from people who do so much objective harm through action that is bureaucratized and is sold with confidence.
2: I'm looking up migrants in cages and shipping the most vulnerable people on this planet to Rwanda to be displaced, abused, potentially catch diseases, et cetera, et cetera. What we really got to worry about is the hoodie in the park with his laughing gas. You know, that's like and, and of course the media just goes, Wow, absolutely. Yeah, that's what we should be scared of. It's extremely like one of those medieval mystery plays where, you know, the devil comes down and animates the arms of the bishop when the bishop is telling everyone to buy their pardons. You know, it's um it's it's preposterous. Anyway, that is my last rant about the UK. You people didn't tune in to hear me get angry about this country. So you you
1: carry on, Nick, and I'll I'll steer clear of that. No, it's (laughs) good of you to mention that. We can all go read The Guardian after this and get a solid dose. Um, Something briefly I wanted to touch on that is related to this, but maybe we can depart and go somewhere else, is talking about drum and bass. Well, let's just say with grief is a thing with feathers. I understand from reading that text and then reading some other texts that the presence of... Ted Hughes and the Crow is woven very heavily throughout that text. You no, know, it's 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 so implicit, it smacks you over the head like crow flying through the front door. And I guess within you know literature, within books that you know we encounter through bookstores that people rave about and talk about their connection to text and language, it's very easy for people to make a common judgment of quality and conviction within certain quarters to evoking people who people put on a pedestal, like Ted Hughes. But it's much rarer for people to engage with a textual form that is resplendent in a very unique vernacular of '90s drum and bass, and I'd imagine for for some people who read this book, the way that you use that language is very well attuned and is of a like quite a welcome hyper specificity, um, jungle drum and bass, broader like UK hardcore music kind of sound and. Like, Shire's is deeply tapped into this in a way where he lives it and feels it. It's like an integral part of his soul. Like, he knows what it means. Like, you know, he has this feeling of black market records in Soho, Andy C and Fotech, Goldie, all that kind of stuff. Do you wonder about people who don't have this connection to this culture in the same way that many people won't have a connection to Ted Hughes or literary tradition? The Ted Hughes fans may not understand who or what a Goldie is. But then also, I guess, um... Are you a junglist? Like, are you part of the junglist massive? That's what I want to know.
2: Yeah, yeah, I am. I mean, I had more, I had more eclectic taste than shy growing up. I, I love drum and bass and I love jungle. And that sound still to me is the sound of the future and it's this incredibly joyful there is no joy like like it. there it, it, it's still um as you say it it's combination of extreme artistry and unapologetic attitude unrivaled i think it, it it's it's the best but i i love you know african blues music and jazz and hip hop and reggae and um and folk music so i never got culty about it in the, in the way that he does but i'm super interested in people that do get very very interested in a single scene like that i think that the the thing is about, about that I don't know. I don't worry if people don't know the music. I think, I mean, I don't know, you know, much about the, you know, the feudal system in Russia in in the mid 19th century and and about the relationship between serfs and clump, but I still, you know, I can still really greatly enjoy Chekhov and and stuff. I don't know. I can either look up or accept that this is how, this is how literature works. It's not a complete rapport. And and in, in fact, in the gaps between his time and mine is where some of the most interesting stuff is generated. So I don't worry too much. If you don't know about jungle and drum bass, then you're going to wonder why you're going to listen to Shy talk about it and you're going to and you're going to be intrigued maybe. And then you have YouTube <laughs> because the, the, luckily YouTube, you know, emerged at, at precisely the right time for men of approximately my age and a little bit older to just make incredible three, four hour long mixes of 1995, 1996. So it's all there if they want to listen to it. But no, I don't think so. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know much about, you know, the relationship between Thomas More and Rome in that year. But 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 Hilary Mantel does a good enough job of making it important and making it palpable for me to feel invested in it. Right. That's all. That's all the novelist has to do. I think maybe a little more in this book, but as it relates, as I said earlier, as it relates to the body and to the actual energy and rhythm of the sentences because I want you to think wow this music must be must have something that's going boom boom you know because that's how shy is moving that's how he's walking and he talks about stalking the morning and bringing the warning and you must therefore be aware that this is a scene that has some has borrowed from you know the MCs are borrowing from the vernacular and from the, the behavior of American MCs but also that it's got something to do with With rave culture, it's got something to do with toasting and reggae culture. Like, he doesn't need to say that for it perhaps to be felt in the language. Um, But also, I'm interested in books that act as love letters and then interrogate. I want to interrogate the kind of fan he is. Like, he's not a direct fan. He's not quite old enough. Mm -hmm. So his older cousin is going to the raves and the record shops and shies on the outside. I read a really interesting article with Burial a few years ago where Burial was talking about his older brother and -hmm. how he sort of got the music through his brother. And I'm very interested in that that once removed because it creates a kind of yearning and when when music was as tribal as it was back then the the it was all questions of authenticity and so you know you have these sort of layers seven layers of hell of authenticity you know you can have an authenticity as a uk drum and bass fan because it's being made here it's being made in your bedroom it's being made by like by your cousin sean in high wickham just five minutes down the road you can go to it's our sound so all the imposter syndrome of listening to wu-tang as a white kid or listening to Nirvana as a kid that's never even been to Seattle. That's all removed. This is our sound. But then within that, you have these different layers of authenticity. You've never even been to Bruno, You've never even been to a rave. You've never even taken a pill. You don't even have a turntables, you know. So for a teenage yearner, there's this just sort of barbed wire circles that you have to progress. And pleasure and pain and worry are all bound up you know the, the anxiety of him sticking all the club labels on his wall you know i really felt that for him because i've known people that just wanted to perform their understanding of a scene so desperately that they would their skateboard would have a stencil on and in their bag they write their band name you know on the first day of school we all looked around and it's like silver chair uh you know rem nirvana you know we've all got our we've all got our tribe literally written on the surface of our you know in the same way as kids these days but some kids recently, and I was like, you all dress the same, you know, the grey hoodies, the Nike Air Max, and they're like, yeah, but that's because this is not where we're styled anymore. Our identity is online. So if you look at our Snapchat, and our Instagram, and our TikTok accounts, that's where you'll see our, our specificity. It's not written on the body anymore. And I was like, I'm so old! <laughs> because we all had to write it on the body, you know, you could spot a jungleist 10 minutes down the road, couldn't you? You can spot a goth coming down the road. So I wanted to play with all that, and also... I wanted joy, like his despair, as I said, his pain is tethered to this excitement. And when you speak to people who have lost people and my memory of losing people in that time is that there's a very unpredictable relationship between sudden peaks of excitement and enthusiasm and joy and the inexplicable sudden mania or collapse or decision to take one's own life. And that leaves the people that behind utterly baffled. But to people that have been through it, it's utterly understood, totally understood, that those two things aren't separate. They're not a hill and a valley. They are the storm you're in. They're, you know, some of the sweetest feeling you ever feel is 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 the, is the moment. For, you know, like I guess I guess and and stuff like that. You know, like within the ecstasy is 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 the pain, um, and and the the privacy, the kind of almost religious proximity and comfort sense of self landing in self that he feels when he has his headphones in is something I have experienced in this life and wish for everybody to experience. And we all would, right. It's finding your thing. It's thinking you'll never be happier than in this moment. And then the world he there's a moment when he takes off his headphones and the world is atrociously bare. And so, yeah, I, it was easy for me to write about music like that because I music is music is the thing I can't do without. And when I wake up in the morning, so when I go to bed, do
1: you write while you listen to music?
2: Yeah, I write, I have different registers. I don't tend to write listening to lyrics, obviously, and I don't tend to, unless I'm editing a book like Shy and I need to be listening to Photek, then I don't listen to, to beats. But I um, I listen to like classical music and early church music and ambient drone music. I listen to a lot of minimal pipe playing or organ playing or, yeah, I like to be really in an intense place because then I can achieve a kind of syncopation between what I'm writing and what I'm hearing. And I'm also, I just don't buy the, the separation that, that capitalism deems us to partake in between the art forms. I just push back against it with all my whole being. I'll work with musicians and artists and actors and try and make the books more like visual art or the books more like theatre or the theatre pieces more like novels or I'll write an exhibition catalogue that is more like a, a short story than an essay. I just want to be, I want that like shy in the membrane between shy and, and the dead is thin. I want that. I want the same in my work. So I feel like I just want to be ambitious really. Um, and that there's a kind of musicality inherent in the work, but there's also musicality in the world. And I want the one to be threaded or attuned to the other. As you know, as being haunted is, as being in love is, as as raising children is simultaneously the most boring and, and infuriating thing, as well as being a thing so beautiful and startling that we we lack a vocabulary for it and just have to be quiet and tearful every day.
1: Yeah. You string together these grand pronouncements of the world with these little mundane specified details. I haven't even had
2: a cup of coffee, Nico. I'll be too pumped up for the Zoom, so I've just had a cup of green tea. The Times newspaper called me, uh, last time for Lani. they called me a hippie. This time they called me mad and weird. You know, they just hate my shit. It's totally fine. You know, you can't write work like this and say what I say in this life without the Times newspaper hating you. But I think they'd appreciate my, my poor pure green tea Um, while I'm discussing (laughs) tethering one's love of drum and bass to one's love of the planet with you on Zoom this morning.
1: I love that. (laughs) That's how it should be. Tie it all together with the couple of minutes that we have left. If you would feel comfortable, I'm sure a lot of people here would appreciate if, if you would like to, would you like to read one last passage from the book to see us out for tonight's event?
2: Yeah, I'd love to. Let me just think about reading something a little bit beautiful, maybe. Maybe because you've mentioned it, let's read a little bit of him... Loving, loving the music and loving his joint. <laughs> <laughs> Nodding and swaying, he dips his neck and bobs and looks to the left, surveys the pond and looks to the right, nods at the night, warm in his heart, mind all bright. He puts his hands inside his hood and presses the headphones hard against his ears. Then he opens his arms out wide and looks up at the sky, and then he bobs and dips double time. And then he hunches over so his head is almost in his lap and the backpack is lifted off the table And then he juts his head left, right, left, right, like he's watching tennis at 170 BPM. Then he sits up and stabs in the air with his spliff. And then he makes little gun fingers with both hands. And he points again again at the ground in front of him. Then he nods at half the speed and rolls his shoulders. Then he waves his hand in the air, whipping circles and leans back on his bag of stones and grins and holds his lighter up. Lighter! He finishes the joint, closes his eyes for the last hot treacly resin burn of the roach on his lip, best bit. Then he pinches it, sits up and flicks it, steps down off the bench, grimaces at the sky, smiles and says, yes. He puts his hood down and takes off his headphones and presses stop. And the world is atrociously
1: bare and quiet. It's really beautiful. Thanks for sharing it with us. I really appreciate getting to know your work and to really living with those people that you so wonderfully bring to life. Thank you for this conversation. It's been really special for me to have this opportunity.
2: I really appreciate your deep engagement with the work, and and um, and it's not easy to do Zoom. You know, I, I wish we could be doing this in person, but it is some feat to achieve a real intimacy and a real conversation and um, a real warmth on this platform and I, I, I really appreciate it and I really appreciate everyone coming as well. It never gets anything less
1: than thrilling and humbling to me that people would tune in and listen to me chat. It's it's really special and thank you to everyone who's decided to spend their night coming along and hearing this conversation with you know, our wonderful guests. I hope you have a really good morning Max. i I'm imagining that you want to get to that coffee and really savor it and uh, <laughs> that buzz to to read the Times and participate in the culture war. But uh,
2: <laughs> I yeah. am a pawn in the culture war. That, that's that's what I am. <laughs> but the thing is, you cannot live as I have lived and not end up like this, as the, as the saying goes. And it, what it ends up making me is more open-hearted and more grateful. And like I go to an event the other night, I went to an event and the foster carer stood up and talked about how grateful she was that I would write about someone like and about someone like her, and how she doesn't see the light of literary fiction being shone on people like her very often, and I could just feel the Times Review just sort of going into irrelevancy, because what kind of madman would I be to cherish one of those over the other, or to hear one of those over the other, when one is love and one is pure £300 for the hit job hostility? Um, we make these decisions in life, Right. It's like looking up, you know, it's like when you realize you haven't looked up all day and you realize that your retinas are just starved of light. Like I can look out and see these people and feel interested and engaged and, and, and loved um, and feel love, you know, for them back. I choose that. I choose it, you know, and call me as long as I live and it'll be a badge of honor. No, That's what I'll do. I'll go and plant some trees for the times.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I'm sure all of you are going to read this book. I just want to reiterate, read this book, drink it in. Max's other books. Thanks again, Max. I hope you have a good day.
2: Thank you. Yeah, have a nice evening, everybody. I greatly appreciate you coming. Good
1: night.
0: Signed copies of Shy are available via all reading stores and our website, where you can also stream previous episodes of the Readings podcast. You'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter. The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Calligan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced from the lands of the Wurundjeri Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of this land and pay my earnest respect to elders past and present and those to come. Thank you.